RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Allie Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 1, The Whitechapel Murders, an introduction. Hello, welcome to 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, a series of articles about the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888. Well, I say the Jack the Ripper murders, but that's not the whole story. The purpose of these essays, can I call them essays? Seems a bit schoolish. Is to portray exactly what it was like to live in Whitechapel at the time, and to highlight the conditions which produced the most famous serial killer in British history. Before all that, though, I should really issue a disclaimer. I'm not an expert in any of this. Not really. My knowledge is based purely on my own research, of hours spent listening to podcasts, of reading numerous books on the subject, both good and bad, and eventually traipsing around the East End to stare at paving stones. There's an awful lot of that sort of stuff once you get involved. The East End visits are always interesting. So far I've been told that I can't take a photo of a road by a crossrail employee. He looked at me blankly when I asked him how he intended to stop me. I've had a man scream, I'm Jack the Ripper, down my ear while I was taking a photo of the arch, which leads to the Florentine estate. He wasn't, as it turned out. I'm fairly sure Jack didn't swig lager from a can, or have quite so many dreadlocks. I frowned at a man for lying on the very spot where Catherine Eddowes was killed in Mitre Square, for a laugh. You don't do that, I'm afraid. It's not even in jest. I've got lost several times, I've been told that I can't walk down Derwood Street by the same man on at least ten occasions despite it being bloody obvious as there's a large wall and enormous construction equipment stopping you from doing so. I've witnessed a man being kicked out of the Ten Bells pub, only to see him remove his t-shirt outside and come back in semi-naked, pretending to be someone else. He couldn't believe that his cunning disguise didn't dupe the man who had, just minutes earlier, launched him onto the pavement. Oh, and I've interrupted a Spanish tour guide to tell him that Severin Klosowski was not the murderer. I'm not proud of this last one, as there's a chance that he was, and no one likes a smart ass. But I didn't like the guy's use of the word definitely. That's not your job, mate. Just give them the options. He might have been, but no one will ever know for sure. So no, I'm not a full-time researcher, and couldn't tell you the absolute minutiae of the case. Such as, I don't know, the address of the coroner who examined Marianne Nichols. But I'd say that I know my Ripper Onions. This does mean that from time to time there will be errors. It's just bound to happen. Only a couple of months ago I was politely corrected as to the exact entrance of Miller's Court of what was once Dorset Street. But hopefully that won't spoil your enjoyment of what is to come. Right, shall we start? No, hang on. I should say this. I may occasionally add some levity to the topic surrounding the murders, but this should not be confused with a flippant disregard to the terrors of those times. These women were killed in the most horrific of circumstances, and led, in the main part, deeply unhappy lives. They were malnourished husks, barely surviving on the streets. One of them was already dying of Bright's disease when she met Jack, and all of them lived from hand to mouth through savage poverty. 
all were killed instantly, and though they didn't suffer painful deaths, though Annie Chapman and Mary Kelly were alleged to have cried out as they were killed, it should always be remembered that they were once loved and left mourners behind. Despite their station in life, their lives meant something. Equally, Jack was not a hero or a comic character. I don't especially like the term the Jack the Ripper murders, preferring the catch-all term Whitechapel murders to describe those weeks. The name Jack lends the murderer a jovial characteristic when he was anything but. He tore these women apart to degrade them to such an extent that he took their organs. He may not have been a sadist, but he should not be celebrated, and I apologise in advance for any comic tone that may eke out over the coming articles. Right then, onwards. Where did all this begin? Well, my first scrape with the field of ripperology began with my first month in London. As an apple-cheeked 19-year-old, I moved to London in 1988, a month before the centenary of the final murder, and began a degree course at what is now Greenwich University. I studied, if you can call it that, humanities, and the first time had a module on social history, and in particular the Cray Twins. I dutifully read The Profession of Violence by John Pearson, about the twins' rise and fall, as well as the old secondary text and more than a few references to the 1888 murders and their introductions. I grimaced at every single one. I didn't want this. I was a man in a hurry with an essay to write. All I wanted to do was write about societal subcultures and self-policed communities before heading to the student bar where a pint of courage ale cost a princely sum of 80p a pint. Priorities, priorities. Fast forward ten years. I'd moved to Hackney, London E8, which is an area not serviced by a tube station. The nearest was Bethnal Green, a mile away, or Whitechapel. The latter was handy for trips to Upton Park for Liverpool games, or Wimbledon in the summer. That was the only time I really visited the E1 postcode, despite it being so close. It was around that time I started reading up on the Yorkshire Ripper, and I recommend Wicked Beyond Belief by Michael Bilton if you've an interest. This wasn't such a random topic at the time. I lived through those murders as a child growing up in Liverpool, and I can remember the newspaper headlines when a fresh body was discovered. I can still recall my mum worrying about coming back from work alone at night. Sutcliffe had killed twice in Manchester, and we lived on the East Lancashire Road in Liverpool, so his passing through was not beyond the realms of possibility. I can remember the night he was caught. The news was full of Iran and the Shah, while Ronald Reagan was about to be made the 40th President of the United States. Anyway, this book led me to the 1888 case, and I considered looking up the sites and having a wander round, as they were only really a bus ride away. Hmm... I learned to my surprise that the majority of the murder sites were closer to the other end of Whitechapel High Street, towards Allgate rather than Bethnal Green, so I simply didn't bother. The only one which was close was the first one, Marianne Nichols and Bucks Road, now Derwood Street, behind Whitechapel Tube Station. I regret not going now, 19 years later, as that area is now inaccessible thanks to Crossrail Roadworks and the people there who think you can't take a photo of a street. It took until September 2014 before my interest was sufficiently piqued into investigating further. One night, I had arranged to meet my friend Dev in a Liverpool Street pub. He was coming from Liverpool's game with West Ham, and I'd been working on a Millwall game for the Times. I crossed London Bridge and headed east towards the pub, but somehow took a wrong turning. I ended up on Fenchurch Street instead of Bishopsgate, and instead of turning off towards the pub, I carried on walking towards Olgate. Eventually, I tried to cut through the streets to find more familiar ground. I walked down Mitre Street and stopped dead. That meant something. Mitre Street. 
What though? Mitre Street? Something historical, maybe? I heard voices around the corner, and everything fell into place. There was a man, dressed in Victorian period costume, standing on a park bench, talking loudly to a group of people below. He was banging on about someone called Catherine. Of course, Mitre Street lay next to Mitre Square, scene of a Jack the Ripper murder. I didn't know which one, but I would look it up when I got home. Probably someone called Catherine, I'm guessing. I read everything I could. Wikipedia, forums and articles. I watched long YouTube documentaries and pulled over absolutely everything about the case. See, what fascinated me were not the murder themselves, but the topography of them all. They were so close together, I didn't know that. You can walk between the second and fifth murder sites in a little more than three minutes. What's more, you could actually go and stand on them. Not that I like to do that. So, for example, Mitre Square. There's a paving stone in Mitre Square. Jack the Ripper stood on that spot. Catherine Eddowes was lying on that spot. You can go there. That brought it alive somehow. Three months later, my mate Tony and I went on an official Ripper tour. I knew roughly where all the bodies were found, but I wanted to know more. Where was George Hutchinson standing when he claimed the Astrakhan man walked past him and looked up stern? Where was Israel Swartz when he decided it was best to run away from the man or men who had thrown this stride to the ground on the night of the double event? I wanted to see them, and they weren't covered on this particular tour, so I went back and took a look. Time and again. For the record, the two spots were A, on the corners of Commercial Street and Fashion Street, and B, near the school gates on Enrique Street. Since then, I've taken a few friends around the area, and we'll be doing so again next week. I'd advise anyone to use the official tours rather than a friend, though, as they've got more facts and drama at their fingertips. Incidentally, I took my mum on an official tour a few months back, but also showed her some of the other areas not covered. I asked her which guide she preferred, me, her only son, or noted ripperologist John Bennett. Him, she said. Really? Why not me? He was interested. Thanks, Mum. Anyway, that's enough about me. Back to the introduction and the year this all happened. The late Victorian era saw London as the biggest city in the world. Victoria had already been on the throne for half a century, while the Marquess of Salisbury, Robert Cecil, was Prime Minister in the second of his three stints in the big chair. The power of the empire was reflected in the great palaces and parks in the West End of London. Furthermore, it was a year of firsts. In March, a meeting took place to discuss the formation of a football league. Two months earlier, the Lawn Tennis Association was founded. Arthur Conan Doyle published the first Sherlock Holmes story, and of no lesser importance, a man called Joseph Asherton Fincher applied for a patent for a game he called Tiddledywinks. The empire was the strongest it had ever been bringing in vast fortunes thanks to the London docks and its trade with other nations. However, the wealth did not stretch throughout the entire city. Conditions in the East End were the direct opposite of those in the West, with thousands living in extreme poverty. Whitechapel had over 75,000 residents at the height of the Ripper murders, with entire families crammed into small, filthy rooms. In 29 Hanbury Street, where Annie Chapman was to be found, there were 17 people living in just eight rooms. 
The problem was not helped by the large influx of Jewish immigrants who fled to the seat of the empire to escape the Eastern European pogroms. As work became increasingly harder to find, the East End turned in on itself and racial tensions ignited the area. The term Lipsky, derived from Israel Lipsky, a Jewish emigre who had horrifically murdered a pregnant woman with nitric acid a year earlier in Batty Street, was hissed at Jews on the street. It was considered, following the second murder, the most appalling at that point, that no Englishman could have perpetrated such a crime. The implication was clear. The murderer was a Jew, because Jews were barely human. Such poverty inevitably led to crime, alcoholism and prostitution. In 1889, Charles Booth, the social reformer, set about drawing up a map of the London streets, with the poverty level colour-coded accordingly. He marked the well-to-do streets in red and yellow, while blue and black depicted the... The lowest class... Occasional labourers, street sellers, loafers, criminals and semi-criminals. Much of Whitechapel and Spitalfields fell into the latter category, and certain streets, for example Dorset Street, Fashion Street, Thrall Street and Florendine Street, were no-go areas for the police. High prostitution rates seemed inevitable. In October, the Metropolitan Police estimated the number of prostitutes to be 1,200, with 62 known brothels spread over a couple of miles. This was no lifestyle choice, but more the means to simply exist. If a man deserted his wife and family, or died, the woman had no other sources of income. Hundreds of women would sell their own bodies to rustle up the four pennies required for a night's rent in a doss house, where they would be given a straw-covered bed, not unlike a coffin on the floor, along with hundreds of others in a similar position. Some of these common lodging houses could cram in over 200 residents per night. They would soon be turfed out of this meagre accommodation the following morning, and left to find enough money to feed themselves and their dependents, as well as another 4D for that night's DOS. That became the price for a knee trembler in a quiet alley, away from the police. The sort of places where a serial killer thrives. The film From Hell paints the victims in a somewhat pulchritudinous light. Let's be clear, Mary Caddy may well have been the youngest of the victims at 25, but it was unlikely that she looked like Heather Graham. The rest of the victims were in their 40s. Polly Nichols, the first recognised Ripper victim, had five teeth missing. Being homeless, they had nowhere else to leave their clothes and possessions, so they simply wore them or carried them. When Catherine Eddowes was discovered in Mitre Square on the 30th of September, she had amongst her possessions one piece of flannel and six pieces of soap, one small tooth comb, one white-handled table knife and one metal teaspoon, one red leather cigarette case, white metal fittings, one tin matchbox empty, one piece of red flannel containing pins and needles, one ball of ink, one piece of old white apron. She was also carrying over 20 items about her person, including boxes of tea and sugar. This was far from a glamorous profession. Alcohol was also an issue. In order to escape from their daily misery, people drank, and all five victims were alcoholics. Polly Nichols could barely walk on the night she was murdered. The last person to see her alive, other than her murderer, said she was so drunk she seemed to be clinging on to the wall to stay upright. Poor Catherine Eddowes had only been released by the City of London Police for 40 minutes, following a few hours in the cells for drunkenness before she met her end. There were no shortage of public houses. A few survived today, notably the Ten Bells on Commercial Street, but they were to be found on most corners, and all provided cheap alcohol. Anything to escape. On top of all this was the smell and disease. Whitechapel had its own particular odour, an all-encompassing fog of squalor. 
Rats were often seen on the streets, and horse and human ordure lay scattered about the narrow streets. Not a healthy place to be. Hardly surprising, then, that only two children in ten survived their fifth birthday. The other Whitechapel murders. Warning, this is where it gets a bit grim. Well, grimmer. The official file on the Whitechapel murders, a police document containing 11 victims, though only five are considered his work, opened on the 4th of April 1888, with the death of a local prostitute called Emma Elizabeth Smith. Emma was attacked the day before, on the corner of Osborne Street and Brick Lane, by two or three men, one of whom who was a teenager. An instrument had been inserted into her vagina, and ruptured her peritoneum. She managed to survive, though, and made her way back to her common lodging house, whereupon she was taken to the London hospital, where she fell into a coma, and died. It's unlikely that this was a ripper murder. He didn't have an accomplice in any of his later slayings, though the vicious unprovoked attack fits his modus operandi perfectly. There's some suggestion that she wasn't even attacked, and this was a product of a botched abortion rather than a murder but the Metropolitan Police kept his death on file. Four months later, another prostitute, 39-year-old Martha Tabram, along with her friend Mary Ann Connolly, known as Pearly Paul, found herself drinking with two soldiers near George Yard Buildings in what is now Gunthorpe Street. That night they paired off with Pearly Paul taking her man to the nearby Angel Alley. At 2am, a woman living in the tenements of George's Yard heard a shout of murder. This was not an unusual cry in the East End, so she paid it no heed. At 3.30am, a man noticed a woman lying on the floor, but, as the light was so dim, he took her to be nothing more than a sleeping vagrant. It was not until 5am, when a dock labourer passed her on his way down the steps to work, and found her dead. She had been stabbed 39 times, including 9 times to the throat, 5 in the left lung, 2 in the right lung, 1 in the heart, 5 in the liver, 2 in the spleen, and 6 in the stomach also wounding her lower abdomen and genitals. No one had heard a thing. Of those 39 strikes, only one would have killed her, the final one to the heart. The police interviewed Pearly Paul, who gave descriptions of the men they'd met, but she was too drunk to recall much detail. An inspection was carried out at the Tower of London, when it was discovered that PC Barrett, of 8th Division Whitechapel, had met a loitering grenadier near the building at the time of the murder. The man said he was waiting for a friend, who was with a woman, and was soon sent on his way. The identity parade produced nothing. Was this the first Ripper murder? There were no eviscerations other than stab wounds, and no organs were removed, but it's more than possible that this was his first attempt. Maybe his behaviour escalated as he grew into his hobby. Personally, I do think it was a Ripper killing, as the first official murder was only three weeks away with Polly Nichols in Bucks Row. One thing was sure, though. There was a man, or men, killing prostitutes. Sadly, the police had no idea what type of man they were dealing with, or what type of murderer. Whitechapel had its first serial killer. <laughs> 